Amen. That song never gets old. Sang it twice today. I'm half tempted to just run it back right now. All right, you can take your seats and uh, you can start uh, getting your Bibles out, start making your way to Genesis 26. Genesis 26 uh, is where we're going to be this morning. We are firmly back into uh, our series in Genesis and we'll run through uh, the end of the book this time. And so as you're making your way to chapter 26, I want, to, I want to begin our time, and I want you to consider here for a moment how the presence of another, right, to have someone else with you, how that changes the dynamic of any situation that you find yourself in, right? So if you think about doing something alone versus being able to do something or have someone else present with you, think about how that starts to change things, Right? There's this sense of community and, and a sense of partnership. There's, there's this confidence or empowerment in knowing I'm not alone. Right, Someone else is doing this with me. Uh, and, and not only that, but then how the presence of others uh, within your life begin to shape and to form you. Right? So you think about how your family is shaping and forming you, how the church shapes and forms you, how the people you work with and the people you live around, right, they shape and they form you. See, the presence of another is going to change the dynamic of any situation or circumstance that we find ourselves in. And I'm saying that because in chapter 26, the entirety of the chapter is going to focus on Isaac's life and God's presence in Isaac's life. In fact, where the text is going to lead us is this idea right here that God's presence with us transforms us and how we live. That the presence of God is going to transform the person of God and how it is then that we live our life. Now, normally I would read the text. It's a little bit longer text, uh, so I'm not going to read it all here at the outset, although we will work our way through uh, the entirety of it. So we're going to go to the Lord in prayer, uh, asking God to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear uh, the truth of His Word. Uh, why don't you join me, and then we'll get into uh, this great passage. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, God, for Your Word to Your people. God, we pray in these coming moments uh, that You would help us to see uh, God, that we would have discernment and, and understanding, and that you'd give us wisdom. God, that, that, that the richness of this passage would be applied in our lives, and we would see what it is that you're doing, um, and that we would find ourselves both glorifying you and changed by you in and through uh, the work of your Spirit using your Word to shape your people. Father, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. God, this morning, praying for Anchor Point and for Pastor Dan Cooley, praying for that body of believers. God, that you'd be moving and working in them. God, would you be shaping and conforming them uh, more and more to your image uh, to make much of your name for your glory. Uh, so, Father, we entrust ourselves now to your care, asking you to do your good work. We pray this in the, in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. All right, the title of the message this morning is God's Presence with his people, God's presence with his people. And again, this idea that God's presence with us transforms us and how we live. Now, because this is a little bit longer section, I, I want to just take a brief moment, give us a 5,000-foot overview so we can see maybe the landmarks or the structural markers that will make up all that's going on in this passage, and then we'll get into the, the specific terrain of the text. But when you look at chapter 26, uh, the central element that emerges with great clarity is God's presence in Isaac's life. But don't take my word for it. Let me show you in the Scriptures. Uh, 
three places we see specific statements to this end. So first of all, in verse 3, as God is speaking to Isaac, he says, sojourn in this land, and here it is, and I will be with you. In verse 24, God again speaking to Isaac says, fear not, for I am with you. And then in verse 28, the Philistines come to Isaac, and here's what they say. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So there's this obvious sense, this, this, this evident reality of God's presence in Isaac's life, and how he responds to that is going to change and transform him, and it's going to shape what he does with his life. And I say that because the same should be true for us as well. So what we're going to endeavor to draw out of God's Word is how God's presence shapes and transforms and molds us uh, as we walk with Him. Three, three things, and it'll be around those three statements uh, that, that we'll see here in the text. Here's the first, look at verses 1 through 5. It's God's promise of His presence. God's promise of His presence. So notice the setting that we find ourselves here in verse 1. It says this, Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Right, so, so, so the story begins, and what we're first told is that there's famine, right? And that's a problem. They don't have Albertsons or Smiths or Walmart or whatever. They just run down and grab something. When there's famine in the ancient world, you starve to death uh, if you didn't find food from an outside source. And this famine, don't fool yourself, Isaac isn't going to Gerar to find relief. That's a stopping point, uh, and he's on his way to Egypt. And you might say, why would he go to Egypt? Well, Egypt had something that very few uh, places in the Middle East had, and it was a huge, uh, ever-abundant flowing river with the Nile. See, what the Nile did is it created stability, and so your crops and your herds and your flocks could be well-watered uh, even in times of famine. And so, so he's on his way uh, to Egypt. He stops in Gerar, and it's there that God meets him and speaks to him. Look at verse 2 and following. Here's what it says. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in, the, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Have we heard this before? We've heard this before. This is the same thing he told Abraham. That God says that because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. See, God shows up and he restates the promise that he had given Abraham, but now here it's extended Isaac. And in extending it to Isaac, notice that one of the things that God does is that he promises himself. He's like, I am going to be with you, Isaac. And yet there's two stipulations that God gives out the outset. One is, he says, don't go to Egypt. We see that in verse 2. And then in verse 3, he says, sojourn in this land, right? So it's really two stipulations, but to, to, to the same end. And so God's promise of his presence, as you think about that, I want you to notice a few things. Here's the first, when we look at verse 2 and 3, that our faith will be tested. That our faith will be tested. In fact, this is not all that dissimilar to the testing that came to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. And as we're thinking about this, I think it's worth noting 
Right here now, we're seeing another uh, individual who belongs to the Lord that finds themselves being tested by God. It was true of Abraham. It's true of Isaac. We'll see later in Genesis, it's going to be true of Joseph. And so, loved ones, don't be shocked or don't be surprised when you find testing in your life. Right? That, that, that God, the people of God, are going to have their faith tested by God. Right? That, that there's biblical precedent for this. And the question, right, when you think about that, the question is not, why? Why is God testing me? No, 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 no. The question is, can God be trusted by me? Because when you look at what's going on here, what God is asking Isaac to do is to trust him. See, from a human perspective, to not go to Egypt is to flirt with disaster, if not starvation. Gerar is in a famine as well. They're not not excluded from that. They're included in this. But God has said, don't go to Egypt. I want you to stay here. And if you stay here, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to give you this land. See, the question is, can God be trusted, right? That's the question, and it's now going to impact the entirety of Isaac's life. Further, when you think about staying in that land, to sojourn in Gerar amongst the Philistines means that Isaac will now live as a foreigner dependent upon the Canaanites and their goodwill and their generosity, right? The irony should not be lost that the one who the promise has come to is going to have to be sustained by the very people that historically are the enemies of the people of God. And so again, we're saying, can God be trusted? And don't miss that at the root of all of this is the reality that living in God's presence is a willingness to trust God's plan, God's directive, and God's leading, which might mean that you and I are going to forsake or forego some things that are, that are, that, that, that are just maybe more clear and more obvious. That it's just not going to be right in front of us. But Isaac, he's not heading to Egypt, right? He's not heading to the security of Egypt. He's going to trust what God is saying. And so, loved one, in the, faith, in the places where your faith is being tested, let us be people who respond with every facet, every, every aspect of our life where we are affirming that, yes, God can be trusted. In fact, let me ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that God can be trusted? Do you believe that God has proven himself to be trustworthy? Are you trusting God in the places where you find yourself currently being tested? Maybe you're saying, well, how would I know? How would I know? Do you still believe what God says even when you can't see the promise? That's how you know. Our faith is going to be tested. That's, the, that, that, that's maybe the harder word, the harder news. Here's the good news. You're not going to be alone in that because look at verse 3. God will be with us. Right? He says, sojourn in this land, I'll be with you. Now, you could just say, period. That could have been it that God said to him, and he's winning. Right? That's, that's an infinitely better scenario. But, but God doesn't stop there. He showers him with all these blessings and promises. But, but God is going to be with us. I want you to think about that phrase for a moment. From God, I will be with you. Right? That phrase should reset, it should recalibrate, it should realign anything and everything going on in our life, right? Sometimes things get off kilter and they need to be reset or realigned, right? You hear that and you're like, oh, right, the Lord is with me, right? Rethinking everything that's in front of me. That might be the recalibration some of you need is to be reminded that God is with you. Like like if you you ever had a situation where maybe you're, you're kind of scared or reluctant or hesitant to do something, and then someone else says to you, I'll, I'll go with you, I'll join you. 
And it changes, right? It changes that dynamic because you're not alone. So, so our six-year-old, uh, Ellie, she's, she's wrestling with some fear issues right now. And, and one of the primary ways that that manifests itself uh, is that she does not want to go upstairs, uh, particularly at nighttime if no one else is upstairs. And so I'll be like, Ellie, I need you to go run upstairs and grab this. And, and she'll often be like, well, you go with me. Or come with me. Now, as a parent, part of what we're trying to root out is like, no, that's irrational. You're not going to be fearful. The Lord is with you. You don't need your dad. Go, right? And, and, and when that happens, she will slink and delay and kind of crawl up the stairs. But there's other times where, where especially if it's just her and I home alone and it's dark up there, and she'll be like, Dad, will you go with me? Yeah, sure, I'll go with you. Now, what happens? In that moment, she goes bounding ahead of me. Ironically, she actually goes alone, right, because she leaves me in the dust. But why is that true? Because dad's with her. See, that's the scenario that's playing out here, except it's not just dad. It's almighty God. It changes things, right? That radically changes things. And so what, what is God asking in your life? And how does that perspective change knowing that God is with you? See, because loved ones, if you're in Christ, God is always with you. You have the ever-dwelling presence of the Spirit that never leaves you, always with us. God will be with us. It's an incredible promise. One other note here before we move on that I think we just need to, we, we need to identify, and it is helpful for our edification. But when you look at verses 2 through 5, just make note of this, that God is our source of every blessing. So I want you to notice the verbiage, right, the verbiage. How many times do we say, see God saying, I will? Right, you see it on repeat. Um, he says uh, at the end of verse 2, right, Dwell in the land, I shall tell you, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. Right, later he says, I'm going to give you these lands. I'm going to establish the oath. I'm going to multiply your offspring. Right, all these things that God is doing. God is the active agent. He is accomplishing this. Do not miss this. Loved ones, every blessing, every blessing, every blessing that we possess is graciously given to us by God. So, love one, every item that you find delightful, good, helpful, instructive, needed, that was all given to you by God, right? So we should be praising God for this. Every breath that you draw, every day that you live, every bite of food that you consume, every sip of any drink that you drink, every ray of sunshine that you feel, every moment of delight when you're with others, every song that you enjoy, every hint of beauty that you look upon, on and on we could go. All of that is the kind blessing of God to his people. And so let us, let us, let us respond with both identifying that God is doing that as well as with incredible joy and praise. Right, let us be people that rightly identify that God is the source of every blessing in our lives. Right, God's promise of his presence, which leads into this second section. Really, the bulk of the story is going to unfold here, starting in verse 6 through verse 25. And it's all captured under this heading right here, that God's presence blesses his people, and don't miss this, in spite of our failures, that God's presence blesses his people in spite of the fact that the people of God fail to do the things that God calls us to do. Because what this section is going to detail, there's this series of events 
Isaac is going to settle in Gerar, so he's trusting the Lord. He's going to turn around and not trust the Lord to protect he and Rebekah, and he's going to lie about their relationship. Um, and in spite of that, God is going to bless his crops, which is going to lead to uh, jealousy and conflict with the Philistines, but it's all going to culminate with God's admonition in verse 24, where he'll say, fear not, I'm with you. In total, God's presence is going to serve to bless Isaac in spite of his failure to trust God in all things. Which, loved ones, that's good news for you and I because we're the same. We are the same. In fact, what we see, maybe in one of the most apt depictions of the spiritual life of all people, is what we see in verses 6 through 12, and it's this, that we vacillate between obedient trust and self-reliance. This is us, right? This describes us. And one of the things I love about this passage is is the honesty of the Bible. The Bible does not airbrush any of its characters, right? It doesn't edit out all of their flaws and their failures. It just shows it to you um, in a real, genuine fashion. And this, this serves really to capture in so many ways what goes on in our spiritual lives, right? In one moment, there's obedient faith, but in the next, there's a failure to trust God. The Bible's just unflinchingly honest, and it's actually really helpful to us. Look at what it says. Verse 6, so Isaac settled in Gerar, right? He's trusting and obeying the Lord. You're like, yes. Now look at verse 7. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. Have we heard this before? We've seen this before. Bro didn't learn from his dad. In fact, you know, this is the same place. Abraham did it twice. This was one of the locations where Abraham did this very same thing. He failed to do it. And then notice what it goes on to say. When, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So he comes out to the window and he watches them and he's like, yeah, that ain't his sister, right? He's like, Something, that's, that's not that. Uh, verse 9, so Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. And Abimelech said, what is this that you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. I mean, this, this whole tension, right? Yes, he's obeying. No, why aren't you trusting? Wow, God is incredibly kind, because look at what it goes on to say in verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Famine, hundredfold. The next line explains it all. The Lord blessed him. See, we vacillate between obedient trust and self-reliance. We're this messy blend of those two elements. God is consistently gracious and good and generous and righteous. And so in this, right, let's examine both sides of this. First of all, the blessing of obedient trust. There are a couple of simple statements in the text that denote this sense of obedient trust. In verse 6, So Isaac settled in Gerar, right? He's doing what God told him. He's demonstrating a trust in God. In verse 12, he sows in the land, right? He's committed to this place. He's doing what God told him to do. See, his trust creates stability even in a time of upheaval, right? And by the way, that's true for you and I as well, right? When we entrust ourselves to the Lord, the blessing of obedience is going to bring stability in our lives. Don't miss that. Circumstantially, it it may not be smooth and easy, 
But there is a stabilization that happens when we're trusting the Lord and what He said. And so let us be people who pursue obedient trust, right? That, that, that we trust the Lord and in that He's stabilizing our life. See, for some of you, the instability and the upheaval in your life, it has nothing to do with the circumstances of your life. It has everything to do with what's going on in your heart. It is a failure to trust the Lord to be good and to see you through. Right? The blessing of obedient trust, but that's held in intention or in contrast to what we see starting in verse 7, and it's the danger of self-reliance. Right? Isaac demonstrates this great trust in the midst of famine, and then he turns around and fails miserably. No, there's no way that God could protect Rebecca and I. You're like, bro, how, how did you not learn from your dad? I mean, in fairness, he wasn't there when it happened, but it, it's highly unlikely that he hadn't heard the stories and yet, isn't this all of us? You nail it in one moment and then you fail it in the next? And this is all of us. And so we can all relate to the danger of self-reliance. In fact, I, I think the dangers we see here are twofold. One is the overestimation of self. See, that, that, that's probably the, the, the greatest danger in self-reliance is that you overestimate yourself, your ability to remedy, your ability to fix, your ability to rescue yourself from the situation. Let me just bottom line this. Don't trust yourself, trust the Lord. And by the way, that's biblical. The Bible tells you not to trust yourself. That's what Jeremiah tells us, that, that our hearts are wicked and deceptive. Like, don't bother listening to your heart. It's going to lie to you. The one that you want to listen to is the Lord, which leads here to then this, this second danger, and, and it's how self-reliance actually exposes and makes vulnerable those around us. Isaac's like, no, man, I'll, just, I'll do it my way. He exposes his wife. He's exposing himself. He's exposing the Philistines. Everyone's exposed and made vulnerable in this. Right? No one's served in this. No one's helped in this. I mean, you could argue that we, we love and care for others by, by not trusting ourselves, but trusting the Lord. And so all of this, right, you, you look at all of this and you go, yeah, this is characteristic. This is a definition of what we all wrestle with. An obedient trust in one side, and then this self-reliance on the other side. And so all of us, we need to be careful. We need to consider. We need to examine our hearts, our minds, our lives. But is my dependency in Jesus, is it growing or is it shrinking? Is my trust and my confidence in myself, is it rising or is it falling? Got to examine ourselves. When we vacillate between obedient trust and self-reliance. Now, there's two other notes that I feel like we need to engage here for just a moment. Uh, one is practical, the other is, is more theological, but I think they're both helpful um, for, for our growth. So I don't want to run ahead without mentioning. Here, here's the first, we'll start with the practical one, because what this section reveals is how God protects his people by correcting them. That God is, cor that God is protecting you and I when God corrects you and I. Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines those whom he loves. See, loved one, when God disciplines you, that, that, that's a sure sign. That's a sure evidence of God's love for you. In the same way that a loving parent would correct an erring child. So God is going to correct us. And, and we see this in a couple ways. Here's the first, is that God exposes our lies. One of the protective ways that God is intervening in this situation is he exposed Isaac's uh, and Rebecca's lie. And he outs them. He reveals that what they said is not 
in fact, true. Here's what you have to know, that if you're in Christ, God will graciously out you in your lives so that you can repent and that you can live righteously. And I say that as someone who has a vast experience in being graciously outed by God in my lives. So my, when I was growing up, my mother told me at an early age, she said, I pray Numbers 32, 23 for you. And I'm like, Mom, what is that? And the t- you know what the text says? Be sure that your sin will find you out. I hated that passage growing up. I hated it. You know why? Because I was constantly getting exposed. I tried to lie to my mom, and in crazy ways, it'd get revealed. But see, now I look back, and I just see the kindness and grace of God. See, if you belong to God and you're attempting to live a lie, God's going to graciously expose you, and that's a gift. And you need to thank God when he does that. That's an evidence of his love and his kindness to you. Not only does God expose our lies, but God also will rebuke us in our sin. Now here, interestingly enough, it's coming through Abimelech. Right? This is a pagan king that's issuing the rebuke. So, so just know God can rebuke his people using anybody. He can use anybody to bring, the, to bring the rebuke that is necessary. But when God rebukes you in sin, whether, whether, whether by his word or a fellow brother or sister in Christ, again, that's a gift, loved ones. So practically speaking, what we see here is that God protects his people by correcting them. And yet there's also a theological item that is worth noting here because there's this rich gospel implication when you hold up Isaac and what he's doing uh, in tension with Jesus and what Jesus will do. Here, here it is. Isaac will use his bride for his own self-preservation. Isaac will use his bride as a shield to protect himself. And what will Jesus do? Jesus will give of himself in order to shield his bride. See, Jesus will go to the cross And he will endure the reproach and the shame and the death and all that's wrapped into our sin and rebellion. Why? So that his bride, the church, is shielded from the wrath that is deserved in our rebellion. Jesus is the true and better Isaac. He does what Isaac absolutely fails to do. And so, loved ones, you have a Savior. What What a great word. You have a Savior who is going to shelter you from the wrath and the judgment that you deserve and will instead offer himself in your place. And so if you are here and you're not a believer, here's what you have to know. That Jesus has offered himself on your behalf and the only proper response is that you would trust in him, you would repent of your sin, and that you would follow him. And for those of you who are believers, man, revel in this. What an incredible savior we serve one who would give of himself in order to shield and to spare us. Praise God for that. We vacillate between obedient trust and self-reliance, which then, I mean, God's response here is just incredible. Look at verse 12. We see God's abundant blessing, and it's given to flawed people. It's stunning in its context. Isaac fails, and then look at what happens. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Famine! hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. And then verse 15 gives us this little anecdotal note of how they're filling up wells from Abraham's day. See, God's abundant blessing 
is given to flawed people. And don't lose the flow of the story. It is on the heels of failure. It's on the heels of defiance that profound blessing and, and, and grace is granted to Isaac. It's almost shocking, if not disorienting. I, I found myself this week wrestling with the text, right, standing up here, because here's, here's how in my mind I'm thinking, man, this knucklehead just totally blew it. God showers him with blessing. And you think about preaching that, you're like, boy, that feels like just a bad sermon coming down the tracks. Hey, it doesn't matter what you do, God's blessing is going to fall upon you, right? So, so like internally, felt myself wrestling all week with, man, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to justify sin. I don't want to rationalize sin. I don't, I don't want to accommodate uh, for sin. But the text, man, the text doesn't even flinch. It's like, yeah, there's failure. And God showers Isaac with, with profound blessing. There it is. Like, what, what do we make of this? Isn't this exactly what you and I have in the gospel? This is the exact same thing that has happened to all of us who are in Christ. That defiant, rebellious sinners who fail to do perfectly what God has laid out for us to do are showered with infinite grace based solely upon the mercy and kindness of God. No one's deserved this. I mean, Isaac doesn't deserve it. He certainly hasn't earned it. And yet what's true of him is true of anyone who places their faith or their hope or their trust in Jesus, that you are then the recipient of God's abundant blessing. Because there's no person, there's no person where God's like, yeah, you actually did it on your own. I didn't help you. You did it all by your, that doesn't happen. All of us in the throes of our sin, God is rescuing from wrath and judgment that we deserve. And instead showers us with his blessing. This is, this is foreshadowing what you and I will ultimately experience in Jesus. It, it's actually giving us a concrete, tangible image of the unconditional, unearned favor and blessing of God upon sinful man. It's God's abundant blessing. It's given to flawed and sinful people. And we say, man, praise God for this. How could you not praise God for this? In fact, as you, as you consider this, here's what I want, I want you to just think about for a moment. When's the last time that you just sat and you marveled at the depth and the magnitude of God's grace to you? You're just overcome by the excessive nature of what God has done on your behalf. When's the last time that you've been humbled by the waterfalls of grace that fall upon you in spite of your sin and your defiance of God? Because that's exactly what the Bible's pointing us to right here. That God's abundant blessing is given to flawed people. And I think it's worth noting, you know, at the outset, in the main idea, we, we made the argument that God's presence with us transforms us. And I think this is the point of transformation for Isaac, right? And it's not explicit in the text, but he's going to operate in, in a different form, in a different fashion going forward. Um, and, and, and don't miss this, that the transformation is prompted by, it begins with the unmerited favor of God, which is true in salvation for all of us, right? It's God's saving grace that then serves to transform God's people. God's abundant blessing is given to flawed people. Praise God for that. Which then leads here uh, to what we see starting in verse 16, and it's God's provision in conflict. So verse 16 uh, we see some of the conflict, some of the discord that now exists between Isaac uh, and the Philistines. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you're much mightier than we. 
right? So he, he's sent away, and he, he doesn't fight. He doesn't argue. He just leaves, and this process is going to play out multiple more times as, as Isaac keeps finding water, and the Philistines keep claiming the land and pushing him further and further away. Look at what it says, verse 17. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water is ours. So they called the name of the well Essek because they contended with him. Then they dug another well and quarreled over that also, so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. It just keeps getting pushed. Now you got to remember, right, we're in a desert. Water's a precious commodity. And it's easy to read this and be like, well, he just kept finding it. There was no guarantee every time he walked away from a well that when he dug somewhere else that he was going to find water. Right, so vital is this commodity. This certainly would have been something worth fighting or contending over, and yet Isaac doesn't do any of that. In fact, he he's almost comes across as being really passive. Like, why? I think at this point, Isaac has come to fully trust what God said back in verses 3, 4, and 5. He knows with certainty, no, God, God said my offspring are going to possess the land, um, so I don't have to fight for it. I don't have to take this into my own hands. I don't have to strive I can trust that the Lord is going to accomplish his promises and his purposes. God has said it, he's going to do it. And if you want another biblical example, you can go back uh, when, when a similar thing happened with his dad, Abraham. So you remember Abraham and Lot and their flocks were growing and they were, they, they, they were experiencing all, all kinds of blessing and they had to divide, right? They were too numerous uh, to live together. And so they're standing um, on top of this hill and it's Abraham and Isaac. Of course, the promise has come to Abraham and they're looking out over and he says, Lot, which one do you want? Where do you want to go? And the text describes it, that the Jordan Valley was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, right? Green, rich, lush, abundant, which by contrast was not true for some of the other areas. So of course, Lot is like, yeah, I I want that area. And you're almost like, Abraham, what in the world are you doing? Well, if you remember at that point, Abraham's like, I'm believing the promises of God. I could give this to anybody. I'm just telling you that my offspring are going to come back and they're going to live here because God said so. And I think that's the same thing that's going on with Isaac here. He's like, I don't have to fight with this. I don't have to fight with you guys. I don't have to strive with you guys. God is going to supply my need. And in the end, my offspring are going to live here because God said so. See, don't miss us. Isaac trusts the word of God to accomplish the promise of God in the lives of the people of God. Did you hear that? He is trusting the word of God to accomplish the promises of God in the lives of the people of God. I wonder, do you believe that? Right, man, we, we all need this word. Oh, that we'd be people who believe what God says in a manner where it's as good as done as soon as we read it, hear it, or see it. Right, Isaac's trusting that God's gonna make provision, he's gonna make room. He told me to be here, he's gonna make a place for me. And so every time he's pushed, There's not panic, there's not fear, there's not fretting, there's not worry, there's not apprehension. He just continues to act on his faith and his trust on God and what God has said. Which I would argue, loved ones, you and I need that exact same response today. Because let me tell you how 
Genesis 26, I think, speaks brilliantly into what's going on in our lives in 21st century American Christianity. I don't know about you, uh, but what I have witnessed in spades over the last handful of years is this very troubling and growing shift in the lives of Christians, where Christians are increasingly more and more gripped by fear and angst and worry and panic and apprehension of all things. Right? We're worried about what's going to happen. We're worried what's going to turn out. We watch the news. We have conversation with people. We see what's going on around us. And the panic, right, the panic starts to set in. It's like we're, we're losing our place. We're losing our voice. We're losing our freedoms. And I'm not going to argue with you that there's a social shift. I would encourage you to read history because all of history chronicles the ongoing social shift in all civilizations. This isn't anything new. But here's what you have to understand. The problem, hear me when I say this. The problem is not the shift. The problem is that the people of God don't believe the word of God in the core of their being. That's the problem. We don't believe what God has said, and we're not allowing God's word to dictate, to transform, to inform, to lead, to direct, to guide how we live. See, see Isaac, and he just keeps getting pushed. You're out of here. All right. Finds water. No, that's ours. All right. Finds more water. No, that's ours. All right. Finds water. Oh, they're leaving me alone. See, the issue even with the shift, he's not in fear or panic. It's like, man, God's told me I'm going to be here. God's told me what's going to happen. So I can adjust to the shift accordingly. I can still believe the promises of God. And so, lovers, here's what you have to know. Jesus already has been and will be victorious. Right? Like, it's already settled. He's going to come back and win. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against Christ. The wicked and the evil are going to be judged. Now, this doesn't mean that you and I live in this curated, uh, idyllic, manicured life where everything just works out perfectly. That, that was certainly not the case for Isaac. But we do know what's going to happen in the end. And that should shape and form, if not transform, how we live in the present. And so if you find yourself... You're sitting here right now, and you're like, I, I, I do wrestle with fear. I am gripped by fear. I, I am anxious. You have to ask yourself. That, that's not circumstantial. It's not situational, loved ones. It's a heart issue. Do you believe the word of God in the core of your being? Isaac, he just keeps moving on. He's trusting what God has said. Let us be people who do the same. And then finally, notice the conclusion here of this section. From there he went up to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. You might say, well, be nice. It's nice God showed up and spoke to him. Loved ones, you have the entirety of God's written word at your ever disposal. Isaac had moments. You have it always present with you, right? So trust me, you got it better than he does. He'd trade with you any day of the week. I am the God of your father. Fear not for I'm with you and I will bless you, and I will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And so notice his response. So we built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. Like it's time to worship. God's presence leads us to worship. That's the culmination. That's the destination. Right? That, that's the ending point. The presence of God moves the people of God to the worship of God. God's presence leads us 
to worship. And that leads here to this final, final section, starting in verse 26. And, and here's what it is. It's that God's presence produces peace with others. God's presence produces peace with others. Now, I'm going to read 26 to 33. Uh, verse 34 and 35 are actually going to lead us into what's going on in chapter 27. We'll pick that up uh, next week. Uh, but God's presence produces peace with others. Here's what it says. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Philcol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me? Listen to what he says. Seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you. He's like, why, why are you guys even here? You hate me. I, I've moved away from you. What's going on? Verse 28, they said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm. They're worried about him. This is, has, has echoes of what we find with Jericho, right? And as the nation of Israel is about to come into the promised land. And then look at what they go on to say. Uh, he says uh, that you will do us no harm. Just, this is hilarious, just as we have not touched you and have done nothing, uh, done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. I think that's a little bit of revisionist history going on right there. I don't think that's entirely how that went down. But he doesn't even fight with that. Right? And they go on, they conclude with this, you are now blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank in the morning. They rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba, therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. See, God's presence produces peace with others. See, when, when God's with us, it, it becomes evident. It's noticeable. People can see it. They can identify it. In fact, at times it's even undeniable. And yet, notice what Isaac says to them in verse 27. He's like, you guys hate me. See, it's not about everybody liking us. That's not going to happen. That even happened for Jesus. You're crazy if you think you can get everyone to like you when Jesus didn't have everybody liking him. The issue is that the Philistines were able to identify the presence of God with Isaac, right? They couldn't ignore the ways that God was present with him, right? They say, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you in verse 28. At the end of verse 29, you are now blessed of the Lord, right? And it concludes with them departing in peace in verse 31. And then you've got this, just this little note where Isaac's servants find water. It's almost like a divine wink or a divine tip of the hat where God's saying to Isaac, I got you, man. I see you. I'm looking out for you. But as you look at this, right, the peace that characterized what had been a contentious relationship is now the result of, of the work of God in the lives of others, right, that God is actively at work in this. And yet as you, as you look at this, Here's where I think this has great bearing for you and I. It's that our peace with others, any relational peace that you find in your life is intended to direct those individuals to Jesus. It is to be evangelistic in nature. Because when you get to the end of Acts chapter 2 and it's describing the early church, that's exactly what you see. Here's what it says in Acts 2.47. That they... And that was certainly not a time when everyone was getting along really well with each other. They were praising God, and here it is, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, the favor of God was intended to accomplish the purposes of God. And so, loved ones, this is the challenge for us, 
that we'd be people who are readily identified and characterized as having the Lord present with us. And keep in mind, it's not about being liked. I think a lot of evangelistic efforts go off the rails because we're so concerned with being liked. It's not about being liked. I mean, Isaac's like, you guys hate me. The point is you can be a person of peace and you can be clear on the gospel at the same time. You can do them both. Even Isaac is living at peace with the Philistines in the midst of conflict and contention. God help us, right? God help us that this would be true of us as well. That as we live in God's presence, that we would be people of peace. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, how your word reminds us of your presence with us. God, how your word reminds us of the blessings that you shower down upon us in spite of our failure, in spite of our sin, in spite of our lack of faith, that we reap the blessing and the benefit of your kindness towards us. Father, that you grant us peace with others. So, Father, we ask, we ask that you would help us to, to know and to believe these truths, that our lives would be shaped and formed by your presence with us. God, and maybe for some of us we've forgotten that and we needed the reminder. Maybe for some of us we, we doubt that at times or, or we wonder how that could be true. And maybe for others of us, we're, we're just overly confident in ourselves. God, for all of us, oh Lord, would you help us? to be people who are living in your presence, trusting your presence, abiding in you, your presence amongst us. God, would you make this true? We pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen.